0: Welcome to Getting Curious, I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by James Doyle, a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where I ask him, who is keeping it real in Mesoamerica? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. This is such an exciting episode. Our guest is incredible. The subject is amazing. Nothing new there on either front. Welcome James Doyle, who is an archaeologist specializing in ancient Mayan art and architecture. He is currently the assistant curator for art of the ancient Americas at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. James, welcome. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for having me. Yes. Okay, so, you know, I... Don't want you to sprain your neck, but you might when I ask my first few questions, because we're not in 101. We're in like Mesoamerican, like preschool. What are we talking about when we say Mesoamerican societies? Like, where are we? What are we talking about? Where in the world is it?
1: So, where are we? Um, We are thinking about what was going on in basically North, Central, and South America before European colonization. So, uh, Mesoamerica is a term that was coined to describe the cultural area that basically spreads between about central Mexico and northern Honduras and El Salvador. So, uh, it's it's a term, it's, it's, a, it's more of a cultural term than a geographic term. So, we're looking at the societies that flourished in a couple of thousand years in what is now central Mexico into Guatemala, Belize, Honduras, and El Salvador. And the uniting cultural traits that we're thinking about are the use of a numeral system. So, they were writing numbers. Numbers using bars and dots, the dots are one, the bars are five. It's pretty simple. Um, but that was uh, spread throughout the region, and we also have hieroglyphic writing. So just like in ancient Egypt, in other parts of the ancient world, we have people recording their histories and their narratives about life in writing. That that is speech recorded in in hieroglyphs, and we also have sort of. Ceremonies like the ball game. So this is another thing that unites Mesoamerica as this region that we think about because the cultures there had similar types of architecture, including a ball court. And of course, rubber balls were invented in Mesoamerica. So you're welcome, world, for that. Um and there, the ball game was played in this area. So it, it was sort of a way, Mesoamerica is this conceptual umbrella to think about what united the peoples, the ancestral indigenous peoples of Mexico and Central America for uh, really starting around 2000 BC to essentially the present, of course, because we have a lot of living traditions today.
0: They still exist now. There are thriving Mesoamerican cultures that exist like contemporarily, but they still Started about two thousand BC. Is that correct? What I'm hearing you say? Yeah. So that's
1: yeah. Around two thousand BC, what we see is people coming together to build things together, Um, and that's as an archaeologist, that's what we can measure, right? So people building community spaces and larger buildings for gatherings. That really happens in the second millennium BC, Um, and really the the. The things that people may have heard of as far as large pyramids, architecture, uh, civilizations, the, the sort of peak of construction and textual production was about, uh, I would say, 700 or 800 AD and in parts of Mesoamerica. But, of course, when the Spanish arrived to Mexico in the early 16th century, there were large empires and societies all throughout this region. Um, so it's it's really What what I like about thinking about Mesoamerica is this total parallel story of art and architecture and society and community that was, you know, completely separate from the rest of the world and doing their own thing. But united, like I said, by these threads, these cultural threads that make a sort of Mesoamerican identity in a way.
0: Uh, That is amazing. So... We learned from Professor Xue Guo about, like, early China that, like, obviously I struggle with time. So, like, what's ancient and then what's, like, pre- what are, like, those definitions again?
1: Yeah, so we say ancient Americas more broadly. That's generally anything before colonization. And so mm. what what we look at with Mesoamerica between about... Um, you know one and a thousand it has been known to researchers as the classic period because it was sort of compared to classical Mediterranean societies and, and empires because you see similar forms of organization of peoples. even though like I said, it's totally parallel and separate, uh, there are these analogies that can be drawn with some of the societies from uh, the ancient world that, people may be more familiar with.
0: So just to do like a teeny tiny, like overall overview, and then we are going to hone in on that art, architecture, society and what like zero to 1,000 was like, but I literally didn't understand so much of this until like right now. So I'm just trying to wrap my non-binary brain around it. (laughs) So 2000 BC, people start to come together in this Mesoamerican area. We start to build things. It really like, all out building, building, building around seven to 800 AD or like common era. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, and then it, no one comes there from Europe until the 1500s for someone from zero to 1000, like AD or common era or whatever, to think that someday this bustling, you know, building city with languages and stuff would ever be like, massively wiped out wouldn't be something that a lot of those people would have probably saw coming
1: right yeah it's an interesting question and you know what's what's fascinating is that with recent advances in archaeology we're able to see that there were these arcs Before and had nothing to do with European colonization. So, for example, the city of Teotihuacan, which is a large, gridded city with massive pyramids outside of Mexico City today, it it really was built, and it was around, let's say, around the 400s. It was probably one of the largest cities in the world. But by, say, 700 AD, it was pretty much abandoned. So we do see Mm. that there were these cycles of sort of explosive growth, but then uh, people migrated away. People, you know, for some reason, whatever governance had brought them together was no longer working and people migrated to other parts of Mesoamerica. So even before European colonization, there were very interesting sort of rise and fall cycles for different groups in Mesoamerica.
0: That's fascinating. So let's start off, at 1 because that's a good number so it's 1 AD we are in mesoamerica are there like several like game of thronesy like you know competing factions to like build the most gorgeous pyramid as everyone kind of friends like who are the players what's the deal like in that time
1: definitely um we we see a lot of different types of competing city states. So if you think about in central Mexico we have something going on that's much more of an urban feel. There's it's it's kind of a it's a central place. But for example in the southern part of Mexico in Oaxaca, we have several different competing city states around 180. And so they're not there's not really one place that becomes the dominant Sort of cool place you want to live. Um, and similarly in the Maya region, which is today sort of sud- the most southern parts of Mexico and Guatemala, Belize, um, we have royal courts coalescing around these dynasties. I mean, it's very, it's very Game of Thrones. Um, because these, these are people claiming divine connections and they are claiming parts of the landscape and claiming sort of subjects, really. And they are, sort of building up these narratives of why you should believe what they say, right? And then, so so we see different ways that people were coming together in Mesoamerica. And that's what I love about it, is thinking about there's not one way to look at societies in the Americas because there's there was always such a diversity. And, um, you know, you think about Maya kings and queens, they would have perhaps compared themselves to somebody in Oaxaca, but... If they look over at Teotihuacan and it was more of, perhaps it was more of a collective form of governance. You have like a council of important families. Um, so there, there really is kind of these stories we can tease out from the archaeological evidence that tell us different things about how people behaved, right? And how, what, what their hopes and dreams were as far as um, taking over things or, um, really just staking out their claims on the landscape, right?
0: So, Teotihuacan, and then Maya, and then what's Veracruz? Cruz?
1: So, the Gulf Coast of Mexico, there is, a, again, a great diversity of societies there that sort of didn't really fit into these models that we know. And so, um, we have... Similar traits like the ball game and things going on, but we also see they're developing their own art styles. They're developing their own architecture that is royal and dynastic, but in different ways that we see in other places.
0: Okay, so that's the Veracruz area, and then Maya is kind mm-hmm. of like more south-south of Mexico. It's like Belize, Guatemala, like southern yes. Mexico. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and Teotihuacan is right outside of, of Mexico City right now. Mm-hmm.
0: And then really, we're all kind of like doing different things simultaneously in different areas. And at this time, like at one, like, isn't that like there's other stuff going on all over, which is kind of what you had just said. But this is all kind of like existing in a bubble for this time because it's not dealing with like outside influences, which is really cool. But like, so like Rome is kind of going on in Europe, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have, like, Rome, you have Han Dynasty, you have Ptolemaic Egypt, and at the same time, you have a similar diversity of societies that have developed in the bubble, as you said, in isolation.
0: Ah! I can't, I'm obsessed. And then, do we call their written language hieroglyphics, or do they have, like, a cute, like, Mesoamerican-specific name for their written language?
1: Well, we, we, yeah, we call them hieroglyphics, and that basically means that you're using pictures for words. And so that's kind of a, a larger term. We have different writing systems, but they are united in the numbers that I mentioned before. So people across Mesoamerica counted dates in the same way.
0: That is so cool. I guess I always thought that hieroglyphics was something that, like, Egyptologists coined. But really, it's like, I was wrong, and it really just means using pictures for words. Fascinating. So... Can you tell me a little bit more about like the Game of Thronesy people going on like around 1 and then like like who came out on top? Like who was like it, you know, 200 like fuck off fuckers like we <laughs> won and no one even knows who you are anymore because we took the crown. Like yeah. we are Mesoamerica's next top royal family.
1: <laughs> it's it's a great question and Really, there's this long history of interaction between different competing groups that, um, for example, so f- among the Maya kingdoms, that's where we have the most information because we have the most text. We have the most hieroglyphic record. Right. And th- it, you can think about it in a way that's a little bit of propaganda. Right. You have here I am. I'm this. Uh, queen. Uh, I actually know her name. Her name Wa- Lady Wakchan like, We can read her name. So here I am commissioning a sculpture of myself standing on top of a captive from one of my rival kingdoms that I've already defeated, and I'm telling you about that in the text. Um, so we have that type of drama going on in the Maya kingdoms themselves. So you have marriage alliances, you have warfare, you have diplomatic visits, you have all the things that we think of in these dynastic, really monarchs, right? I mean, it's, it, that's, that's what they're claiming. They're claiming a divine status. And then, so if we think about the interaction within the Maya kingdoms, that's one thing. But then, for example, Teotihuacan, many miles away, it was such an important city that there's a Maya neighborhood, There's a Veracruz neighborhood at Teotihuacan, so it is really like the Manhattan of its time. It's drawing people from all over Mesoamerica because they want to be a part of that. And so then you have, well, at some point, it looks like the people at Teotihuacan, and actually, this is a very specific year, 378 A.D., Common Era. It seems that people from Teotihuacan march into the Maya area, which they're recording on their monuments. This guy arrived in this this day. And they, they are having an effect on the politics. They replace a King at a place called Tikal Guatemala. So somebody from Teotihuacan comes in and basically acts as the King Etsy call and puts a new person on the throne. So it's it's really we have this great Why? rich history. We don't really know. I mean, that's it, the there's new archaeology going on all the time in these areas to try and get more of that story because we sometimes we only have the texts and what they record. So it's important to back that up with some of the physical evidence uh, from archaeology. Looking at you know, are there is there evidence that people, for example, used brought their own pottery with them, or if they're yeah yeah they're making their own pottery in the way of the local people so teasing out these stories of conflict and migration and and interaction are one of the big priorities of archaeology in Mesoamerica these days
0: so the the most major like queen at, at a time in like the maya region like she wouldn't necessarily be like running teotihuacan but maybe she would have like a representative up in like the neighborhood up there or whatever
1: yeah I think that that's a fair hypothesis because Teotihuacan is, is a fascinating place because we don't have, we have some hieroglyphs, but they're not deciphered yet. And so we get a sense that there is a an intense top-down leadership of the government there, but we don't know if it was one person, for example, like was there a king of Teotihuacan? There's not that evidence. So it looks like maybe these are important families kind of ruling together or, but I think, You know, people are leaning towards more, there might have been one central person at Teotihuacan. But like you said, the people in the Maya area, they weren't subjects of Teotihuacan. They would be interacting and trading and they would send emissaries or or diplomats, just like you would think of in other places. So um, they want want in on the action, but it's not um, necessarily a top-down sort of um, domination type of relationship.
0: So in 378, was it that like someone in Teotihuacan... Like, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that story. So basically, like, there was a different city, which was called... Tikal. Tikal. And so what happened again? <laughs> Just tell me up. So, so the,
1: at Tikal, they rec- the people record in the text that somebody from Teotihuacan came to the center of Tikal and on that day that he arrived, the current king died. So the assumption is that there was something sinister going on. And there was a new king that was probably related to this Teotihuacan person put on the throne there. So it really was about exerting this outside political control over a place that was very far away. And there are several possibilities. Like maybe Tikal was trying, getting too grand. You know, and mm-hmm. maybe they were in the eyes of these Teotihuacan people, they needed to be sort of brought under some sort of control. Um, these are the types of arguments that people are trying to address with archaeology these days, both at Tikal and at Teotihuacan. So there are great uh, Mexican and Guatemalan projects right now working on these questions.
0: So it's like, as far as governments of this era, it's like there was some, you know, more dynasties, some were more, like, tribunal. We don't exactly know everything. But what were some of the, like, economic and, like, cultural differences between these Mesoamerican areas?
1: Great question. We we know that there were a lot of different languages spoken. So you can imagine that it was a very multilingual place, and you would have had people that traded over long distances that probably spoke many languages. And so if we think about what are they trading, right? Um... So we we know that they're trading things like obsidian. So the volcanic Mm -hmm. glass, you would actually need that at a very basic level to cut things because we don't have metal knives. We're 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 using obsidian that come from volcanic sources uh to create blades. They're very, very sharp sort of small blades, but you're, that's what you're using to cut in addition to other stone tools. Um, jade is another thing that was very important as a commodity in ancient Mesoamerica. And so you may be more familiar with jades from, say, East Asia or other places in the ancient world.
0: I'm familiar with jade rolling, just you know, <laughs> rolling it on my face.
1: Yeah. Well you should get some there's American a, jade because that's that's high quality. There's a source in Guatemala for jadeite which is the the really green beautiful stone and it was valued early on as a luxury good. It really is something that is that was created and they would make regalia out of it, pendants and beads and the blue green color was important too because not it's not just a precious valuable material, it's about the symbolism, too, because jade for the ancient Mesoamerican peoples was about agricultural fertility. It's the blue-green color of water. So it's about that type of connection to the landscape. And then you, wearing that, are claiming that connection to maize, for example, because the jade sprouts are the blue-green sprouts coming out of the corn. So the, the, there are these layers oh. of metaphors for what they're trading around as far as jade. Um and we do see feathers as well. That's, these are the kind of ephemeral things that we only get glimpses of, but we have to know, we know that people were trading tropical bird feathers over long distances as, as commodities. Because if you want, if you want a fancy headdress with cat's all feathers or macaw feathers, they don't live near Teotihuacan. So you need to get, you need to get on that so you can get your feathers imported. Um, and we also know that, uh, marine shell equally was, was traded over long distances. So, you know, the beautiful sort of like corally colored spondylus shell that's this orangey deep red, that was another very important material for peoples in Mesoamerica to make into things that they would wear and project that access to wealth and project the connections and how important you were being able to have those, those raw materials and, and make them into things. So... We also probably think they were trading chocolate. So uh, uh, you can only grow cacao in certain areas because of the way the trees behave. But uh, it was a very important ritual drink. And so the cacao beans were being traded over long distances. So um, the, the those are all really uniting peoples in Mesoamerica because they're all these valuable materials for different societies, which I think I like to think of it as kind of a, a trans- lingual uh, way of connecting the peoples because if you say say you're the you're the king of teotihuacan you show up in the maya area you're wearing jade you're wearing shell so i as somebody who lives at tikal know that's an important person right so it's um it's a way of projecting
0: your importance across cultures, really, in, in Mesoamerica. America. I think one thing that has really stuck with me from what Jigwo told me is that, like, you know, often history is written by the winners. And so we don't know a lot of times in, like, ancient and, like, early times. Like, well, what was it like if you were just, like, an everyday person? What if you weren't a king or a queen? What if you couldn't afford the shells? What if you didn't have obsidian in your backyard?
1: What are the sort of regular people doing, right? You know, if you're not in one of yes. these dynasties, if you're not uh one of these sort of what we can say is like a wealthy or a higher status household. What are you doing? And what's interesting is the basic. So if you imagine a very basic mm, maize farm in 400 AD in the Maya area, you would have a house and it was, it was organized in a way that was not dissimilar to the palace. So you have the foundational concepts, for example, of the four directions in the center because the the sort of layout of the universe for a Maya person that's living in a small, you know, wooden structure is the same that we see in the monumental architecture. So it's the kings and queens are really co-opting these ideas and building them at a monumental scale. But there was that basic connection with the people who were just farmers, just everyday farmers. So some some recent archaeology has been addressing what are the people doing outside the cities? What What is the relationship between commoners, what we can call think of as like sort of common folk, and these people who are, like you said, writing their own histories? Um, so I think the important thing to think of is that they're... they're Everything was based around maize agriculture. So you have the most humble farmers have the same cycles of planting and harvesting. And they're thinking about the calendar and the solar year in the same way that the kings and queens are doing it with this sort of mythological gloss, if you want to say. So uh, there is that sort of basic understanding because they're farming the same things. So even if you don't have access to fancy stuff, you can still you have that connection of we are maize farming peoples, right?
0: If I was, like, not from an important family, and I was in Teotihuacan, like, and I was myself, so, like, I'm non-binary. I, you know, I'm really wanting to just, like, wear floaty stuff. I want to, like, dress. I'm feeling floaty. I'm feeling texture, but I also want to suck dick. So what about that? Like, is there gay stuff? Is there non-binary stuff for people that aren't kings and queens and stuff? Like, how would I have fared is what I'm trying to say. Like wanting to go to the gay bar, wanting to also be living my gender identity truth. Like, is that on anyone's mind? Like back then, you know?
1: So about um, gender, right. And thinking about how do we not project Western ideas of gender onto the archeological past? Because that's a, it's a real question, right? Because, um, how would we know around 200 AD in Oaxaca what people thought about men and women and non-binary and all of these questions? Um, so what we have, what do we have evidence for? So we know that, for example, in the Maya hieroglyphs, there are very specific markers for female rulers. And so they have an actual prefix that is about their feminine, um, identity. And it's uh, clear because they're also said, this is the mother of so-and-so. So it's, you can sort of trace the genealogies in that way. But what's fascinating is that, the, so remember the, the badass queen that I spoke to you before about who's standing on top of a captive, that's a, that's a monument that's fascinating because that's she's clearly depicting herself in a sort of typically male representation. And so we see that the men and women of Maya royal courts are, there's no sort of male dress and female dress. So we have to imagine that uh, there was
0: a very different understanding of male and female. I got to stick on that point one second. There's no difference in dress. Like the outfit evidence is the same for men and women. Like, so boys got to wear like gorgeous skirts and like headdresses and like really ornamental like necklaces and stuff so
1: here is what i propose i'm going to take you to copan honduras because this is a fascinating maya site and the monuments were made out of a volcanic stone so they preserved really well and we see kings in full skirts full headdresses and um we also see queens wearing the same thing. So, it, and you think about the, like I said, these materials of value, they are used in similar ways to adorn the body with males and females. Now, there are certain things that don't cross over. Like you would see a male in a loincloth and you would not see a female in a loincloth. But if, 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 you know, King so and so is in a ceremony, they could be in full like knee length or even like longer skirt that's made of beads of jade. So there have been some very interesting investigations into these images, because what are we looking at? You know, is it a male sort of co-opting the sort of female power because this is a more traditional thing that a a female would be wearing in the imagery or is it just a different, we're not able to access that, you know, somebody who was a viewer at the time would get it. But we have to sort of right. check. We have to check our assumptions at the door to say this is different. And so, what we what we do have is that when the Spanish colonizers arrived, we know, and even into the colonial period and into today, we have different ideas and different words to describe gender in these indigenous languages. So there's 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 a lot of great anthropology and linguistics having been done about what if, what if we can think about there was an America's totally separate story here. And we have different ideas and there, um, for example, in some languages, there's an ancestral concept of a mother, father or a grandmother, grandfather. And it's, it's one person embodying both of those ancestral forces Um, but it's not necessarily male or female. Do you know what I mean? So, um, the, it's. I think what I love about Mesoamerican art and writing is we can we have these great case studies for. We have to think differently. You know, we ha- we have to we can't take what we learned in elementary school and just apply it to these cultures because they were doing their own thing. So we have to. You kind of respect the um, indigenous creation of. The systems that we don't necessarily have access to. If you showed up at Teotihuacan and you wanted to do your thing and wear skirts and just, you know... Dance and sing, I think it would be welcomed. I mean, we see that ceremony was such an important thing that I I don't think that there would have been defined roles for um, men or women. We don't necessarily have that evidence. And we see very powerful images of more female deities at Teotihuacan, but they've got claws. They are, you know, they're sacrificing things. So you can't associate one one one-on-one with things because we just, it's, it's a different story.
0: Well, I love that. And I think it really drives home the point that our modern understanding of the gender binary is modern and it's not the way that it has always been and that there has been lots of different ways that lots of different cultures have approached the idea of male and female or even differentiating them at all. Do we see evidence of homosexual behavior happening, honey. We always, on an ancient episode of Getting Curious, we have to ask. We live for gay <laughs> stuff. We love homosexual stuff. We love it past, present, future. Is there any gorgeous deities of just like really Tom of Finland on Mesoamerican, like just two <laughs> guys just really like together or, or not as much?
1: What's It's an interesting question. We see a lot of... so. For I'll stick with the ancient Maya because we have the most information about them from the text. Um, we see a lot of, I'll say, homosocial activity. So we see, uh-huh. you know, you you see that there is this idea that young men need, need to be grouped together and princes would sort of be in the same space. And so, um, and, and this is, you know, there's a work, there are a lot of great scholars that work on this out there in the Maya area. And you think about, well, there is there are rare depictions of homosexual activity in Maya art, but they're they're kind of restricted to uh, very in, intimate spaces. So one of the the best examples actually was a beautiful sort of almost graffito that was in a cave. So you think about you have to go into these marginal or liminal spaces to. Um, represent these acts that weren't sort of in the main architectural program right um but we do see there must have been the concept of like a young men's house and we know about this from other cultures around the world where there's something um and this is uh, my graduate advisor wrote about this so i i I think about it a lot because there's something unpredictable about teenage men and so you you have to kind of corral them and then of course there's exploration and so there are uh, there are some rare instances in which um homosexual activity between males is represented um off the top of my head i can't really think about
0: just i want more lesbians like give me that juicy lesbian ancient not you just like and like any archaeologist out there Let's find that yeah. good old cave lesbian softcore story. Like, I just Let's, need yeah. We all need it.
1: We need that period but drama, I love that you
0: know? Like, yeah. Yes, and I mean, I love that we have like a a little bit of like a Brokeback Mountain, like on, you know, like seven to 800 AD. And I, and, I, and it's interesting that it's like it wasn't in the main textbook, but if you go into if, some like, you know, some find some people's houses, they might be talking about it, which is adorable queer Mm -hmm. history through, like, the classic era, which I'm obsessed with. I can't even stand it. Okay, so what about bilingual people? Do we know about people who, like, you know, if there's different languages, like, which then made me think about jobs. What were the different jobs that people would have?
1: That's a great question. And there were definitely bilingual people. And even within, for example, the Maya kingdoms, there was probably like a prestige language. So you think about like oh. like a Latin, and then you have French and Italian and Spanish and Romanian, you know, that are spoken in different regions. So there there was this sense that there may have been a lingua franca for people at a certain elite level. Uh, But, you know, like I said, there was a lot of long-distance trade going on. So we know that those people and that were the intermediaries would have spoken a Mayan language here, and then they could speak uh, what the Teotihuacan people were speaking as well, because you have to have that communication. So definitely people were trading. And we know that when the Spanish uh, invaders arrived, they were successful because they you know, basically captured people that could speak multiple languages, the most famous of which um, is known as Malinche, who was a, a woman from the Gulf Coast, right, that we mentioned before. And she could speak Mayan languages as well as Nahuatl, which was the language that was the Aztec Empire uh, imperial language. So th- these sort of mediators would have been bilingual for sure. And thinking about people's jobs, you know, this is a great question because there's, again, just like concepts of gender, we don't want to project our concepts of economics, right, to a system that was oh. developed in a, in a totally different context. So we do see what we think of as markets, right? So we see people specializing in things and trading in things. But was it, like, money? You know, it, it's hard to say. And in different places, it seems like there were different economic systems in place. But, for example, there... Uh, In the 2000s, there was a spectacular set of murals found. This is, again, around 700. The site is Calakmul, Mexico. The arch-rival of Tikal that I mentioned before in our Game of Thrones storyline. And at Calakmul, there were these murals that showed people in a market. And it would be this beautiful portrait of a lady. She's got her little traveling hat on because we all need to take care of our SPF, right? And she was the vendor of salt for example. And it says, the title of the hieroglyph says, She of the Salt. And then she has a counterpart on another part of the mural that's, this is the lady who bends ceramic vessels. She's got a basket full of pottery and she's the woman of the ceramic vessels. And we see a woman that does just maize atole. It's like, um, it's like a, I don't know how to say it. it's like a soup, you know, thinking about like a hearty hot meal made out of maize. There she is and she's got her product there so we do know that there were specializations of people but was that did i come to the Atole lady and give her cacao beans like i would give money today i don't know you know or did i trade her obsidian blades you know was what was the sort of day-to-day economy like we're still teasing that out
0: so we don't know if there was a currency versus like a bartering thing
1: Exactly. Some people have argued that shell beads would have been currency, as long as you know, as well as cacao beads. Um, but it's not that clear. And we know that when the Aztec Empire was sort of all over the place, uh, right before the Spanish uh, invaded, they were trading things like obsidian and uh, shell and cacao. So that's why we're trying to sort of bring those concepts into more ancient societies like the the Maya or Teotihuacan.
0: What about hairdressers? Do we see any barbers? Do we see any hairdressers, massage therapists, makeup artists?
1: Let's. I would say I would put them into category. We know that there was a very special role of like a healer. So thinking about wellness, you would have somebody that was that had played a sort of spiritual role, but also very very much about uh, curing illnesses or um, you know doing propitious things to generate. favorable uh, agriculture or, you know, these types of things. So I don't, you know, certainly we have great portraits of people and you definitely would have had some pretty spectacular hairdressers, especially for the classic Maya uh, men and women, because they have some great, we've got some cool stepped bangs going on. We've got lots of uh, high ponies. Uh, There's Uh a lot of... There's a lot of great hairstyle in the classic Maya art. So we know that there would have been people that specialized in that. And we also know that body ornamentation was, you know, and maybe even tattoos or scarification. So there was this, there was a whole probably industry about it. But it, I like to think of it as multi layers because these things also had a spiritual dimension, right? So... um mm-hmm. You, like, for example, oh, and I'll tell you this. One of the fascinating things about Mesoamerica is that when, um, babies were born, often their heads were bound so that it actually pushed the cranium up into a form that was referencing a maize cob. So it's, it's about you are sort of claiming this connection to a maize deity. And so when you see classic Maya kings and queens, they often have this very sloping forehead and a very high sort of cranium. And that was because they were actually modifying the bones when uh, they were infants. And so that often, uh, it's, it's nice for headdresses and other, because you, you can really do very elaborate assemblages up there when you have that uh, corncob head to, to work with. But... Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it, there's there there's a fascinating look at what are the standards of beauty in non-Western cultures. That these aren't the things that they're writing about, unfortunately. So we don't have you know we don't have this everyday kind of saying, "Oh, and then the hair the the royal hairdresser came and did that." We have some of that, I feel like, in ancient Egypt and other places. But for the Maya, they were really focused on their historical and sort of uh, s- supernatural events. So we can only just sort of hypothesize about the, the beauty people that would have swirled around these royal
0: courts. So because this is like this, like Mesoamerica is going from like 2000 BCE all the way up until like now, but until the Spaniards come in like 1500, I mean, this is like, what I heard you saying at the very beginning is that it, there is waves and there is cycles. Like there are certain areas kind of rising and falling and is all of that due to just like a, a myriad of things like it could have been illness like a drought it could have been a government you know or someone passing away it just could have been any given bunches of things that could have caused that right
1: yes there there like for example we see around 900 AD the cities like Tikal and Calakmul that i mentioned it's clear that something happened it's, it's a combination of things. It's political factors. It's environmental factors because we see from the archaeology that there was a, a pretty bad drought throughout the Yucatan Peninsula at that time. Um, it could have been also conflict. You know, it's, it's thinking about people and these competing claims, right? And you have, we have evidence of warfare. We have evidence of conquest and burning and, and all of these things. So, um, we can imagine that just like societies we know in other parts of the ancient world, um, there were these rises and falls. And so around 900 AD, people move away from places like Tikal and Kalakmul. And the rulers there, whatever authority they had was no longer working because they're not they're not able to build things. So they're not marshalling people like they were before. And maybe people are still living around there, but it's um, I like to think of it as kind of, Things sort of dissolve and then recombine in different ways. So, for example, have you ever been to Chichen Itza, for example? It's in, yes. near, near Tulum. Okay. So. Yes. That is a Maya city, but it has so many different things going on architecturally because it's a little bit later. So we see people kind of migrating around, and then they come around this, and then they go here, and then they go there. So Chichen Itza has kind of a mix of styles from different time periods. And that's what we can see is that these different ideas um, come together. And we do know that uh, in the tropical sort of jungle, really, where they're building these cities in the Maya area, there were problems with overuse of the land. We see erosion in the archaeological record that would have made it a problem to have drinking water, for example. So Mm. we do know that there were sort of man-made, anthropogenic causes for these types of uh, migrations and abandonments of places. So, But uh, yeah, you're right. There there are a lot of different factors.
0: So eventually, does the Aztec, people come in and take over everybody is that like the end of the game of thrones story like before the spaniards come essentially yes um we have
1: the aztec
0: empire really takes off
1: around the 1300s so it's it's later than what we were talking about with the the maya kingdoms but there were millions of maya people living in the same area just in different types of cities right and so we know that for example the aztec traders went all the way down into the Maya area in Guatemala. Guatemala actually is the word for the place of Guatemala. It comes from the Aztec language because the Aztecs had a name for it. So they would come and get quetzal feathers, cacao. They, they were trading these things from other areas, but um, really they, they, they had this imperial system at which, so here, I, if I'm the Aztec, Lord, I come into your city. I don't burn it to the ground and and kill everybody. I I say, who's in charge? Okay, you can stay in charge, but you just have to pay us tribute. So it was this type of hegemony that uh, worked for them and they were able to establish these networks of local governors, right? And so you have... When the Spanish arrived, they were the major players in Mesoamerica, although it was still a very multilingual place because, like I said, the Aztecs didn't really impose a lot of things. They just so you would have the local languages being smoked, even if they were sending cotton or chili peppers or jaguar pelts as tribute to the Aztec emperor, which, of course, the capital is Mexico City today, uh, the Aztec capital and the sort of sacred precinct is right under the main plaza of Mexico City. And so there's some really exciting archaeology being done because the Spanish just came in and sort of dismantled, you know, they they dismantled the pyramid and built the cathedral right there. But The earlier layers are still there. So we have some wonderful colleagues in Mexico City doing essentially urban archaeology, but they are finding these wonderful offerings that are telling us a lot about how the Aztecs conceived of their capital as this mythological place.
0: Did people, like, escape South when that happened? Like, were people able to, like, get, like, to South America or something? And then also, this is, like, a two-question, so bear with me, but I just read this article about this gigantic city from around the same time, but it was, like, outside of St. Louis, and, like, it was called... Yeah! And then, and they were just kind of, like, partying it up, and, like, they were, like, the the article is just, like, can't really tell a lot about it, but, like, we can definitely tell that, like, they were eating tons of deer and, like, getting down. Did anyone ever like escape that far up, like from Mesoamerica, or did people escape down? Like, did, like, what happened when it, like, when everyone got sick?
1: I mean, I think um, there, it's a, that's a whole other hour we could talk about, but um, I, I would say this. We, because of what the colonizers were recording, we don't know the extent of, how people interacted because those networks were disrupted by disease and by warfare, right? So, But I would say, think about um, marine shell. Like I mentioned before, that was a really important commodity that was traded. So we see people at Cahokia importing marine shell from the Gulf Coast. And we see people in the Southwest importing marine shell, exporting turquoise to the Aztec Empire. And for example, we see Scarlet macaws showing up in Utah because of the ancestral Puebloan people trading with peoples from Mesoamerica. So we have to imagine that. If, let's say there, there's a book out there that I recommend to students sometimes called 1491, and it's you, you put yourself in just before everything changed, right? Before this, the Americas became really the first global nexus because you think about the Caribbean—that was where everything came together in the first instance so let's think about all these these peoples were clearly connected so when the Spanish arrived did people migrate north and south and uh, escape as you put it like yes probably but we don't have those stories and we do see very powerful societies that resisted colonization to the present so there were some peoples that were able to whether because of uh, landscape or um, you know Military prowess, were able to resist that and say we're not we're not playing this game, um, Spanish folks. So we 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 see that there was there were a variety of ways that people the indigenous peoples adapted and uh, have been very resilient in the face of colonization for centuries. And so, uh, for example, in Mexico, you see today you know, millions of people still speaking indigenous languages, uh, and not Spanish. And for example, in parts of, um, Central America, we have fully somewhat autonomous indigenous communities that are sort of subsumed under the modern nation state system, but are doing their own things still. And so, um, you, you see that there are these popular narratives that everybody was kind of wiped out or, but it's, it's, we're seeing that that's just not true. And with more evidence from cuisine and anthropology and linguistics, we see that these indigenous concepts really shaped how a lot of peoples live today. Um, And so that's, that's another exciting thing about working on the archeology span of Mesoamerica because we see the ancestral traditions living today and we, uh, collaborate with our colleagues in these countries so that the descendant peoples can connect with the archaeology that's going on because it's and and often for example in Peru um, one the, the major indigenous languages in Peru is Quechua and it was the language of the Inca Empire right and what we know is that Looking at the archaeology, you have to know Quechua to understand what's going on in the material record because there are such foundational different concepts of landscape and relationships with people that only by knowing that indigenous language and, and collaborating with indigenous interlocutors can archaeologists really make arguments about what's going on in the deep past. So there's there's this really great opportunity to work with local communities and and be informed by these practices that and these languages and these concepts that can lead us to better understandings of peoples in the in the far far past.
0: So I love that you mentioned that book, 1491. What are some, if people are at this point in the podcast and they're like, I am so interested, I am so titillated, I'm about to go and roll up in this class somewhere. Uh, I mean, especially with the art, because I mean, we didn't even get to get there as specifically as I meant to, because I was just like so obsessed with everything that was coming (laughs) in my brain. And I like, and I'm just now getting to like my art questions and I'm like, oh my God, this is a whole other podcast, but where can, which I kind of do want to have you back for another one about like what happened when they came. What do, do we just need to have you back to have like a whole other thing about like art and then what happened when the Spaniards did come? Do you feel like do you know about all that? You do know about, about all that stuff.
1: Yeah, sure. You and, can't help um, it. Is
0: it is our I'll talk about it all day I mean. <laughs> episodes are just yes, it's just that our ancient episodes are so fascinating. You could never do it in an hour's time because. There's just so much to cover, but we do have a little bit more time and we can yes. still do that. But I just want to have this one more question. So sure. like with this art, cause there's so, I mean, there's sculpture, there's like, you know, kind of art in caves. There's like also hieroglyphics, which in and of itself is kind of, it's art, it's picture. Yeah. Um, oh, but, but I, you kind of answered. It's like, we can't like impart like our Western understandings of it, but like, so, but there was artists and, was there, like, was there common artists and then also, like, you know, royal artist people? Like, was there a, a different styles? And obviously there was There was different eras.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, what I love about studying Mesoamerican art and art of the Americas in general before European colonization is that we see a totally different history of art. And, you know, there aren't these... Mo- you can't use... Terms like naturalism and surrealism and, you know, they don't, it doesn't fit. And what I love about, you know, some people talk about the invention of abstraction and it's like, no, we've got abstraction in the second millennium B.C. in the Olmec civilization. What I love about it is the artists are clearly making choices. They're not choosing to faithfully represent, say, a jaguar or a puma they're stylizing it in a way that's meaningful to them and that's these these distinct choices that artists were making in you know it's not that they didn't know how to naturalistically sculpt uh, a jaguar it's that that wasn't meaningful to them so how do how do we get at those other questions what why are they making these distinct choices so I'll, I'll go back to the, the Maya kingdoms again, because that's, again, where we have the most information. And in that context is the only time we see artists signing their work. So we actually have named artists from classic Maya monuments and painted ceramics. So we, we know there are a little bit more than 100 named sculptors. And what's clear is that from certain sites, they worked in an atelier-type structure where there was actually a, a someone in charge. So there's like a head sculptor, and you have several other people working on the same monument. So you could, if you see a large standing monument, you can think of it as there were maybe like four or five different hands. And you, and you wonder, like, was this the guy that was assigned to do faces because he was like really good at faces? Or was this the person that did all the glyphs? all the hieroglyphs because they just were the scribal, you know, artistic license to do the little phases and and do the dates. So they worked together on these monuments. And even with the painted pottery, because for example, um, drinking cups, like classic Maya canvases, were drinking cups, so you look at these beautiful ceramics, oh. and you see that's where the painters are going to town with different supernatural narratives, or portraits of rulers, or just texts. Um, so you think about they, and then they sign their work, and it's about the the the. It's not necessarily like just their name. It, there's a little bit of a a title that refers to knowledge. It's about, these are the keepers of knowledge and these are the recorders of knowledge and history. So back to your question, were there artists? Absolutely. But did they have, again, like multiple roles in their communities? Maybe they were artists and healers. Maybe they were artists and um, stone carvers. You know, they worked on more architectural features. So um, we don't know if there were sort of like, Renaissance type artists and patrons, but we do know that they were clearly very important to these Royal courts and they were valued for their talent. And some, in some contexts they were actually able to, to claim that, you know, by signing the work.
0: So, uh, I mean, I have learned so much, James. I, usually what I would do at this point in the podcast is I would give you like a Yogi recess to like, tell us, like something that you would just be remiss, like to not mention over the last, you know, hour and 10 or so minutes. But I think you accidentally just got yourself booked on like a second episode of Getting <laughs> Curious, because there's just so much more we have to go through. And I think at that time I will offer you a yogi recess, unless there's something really genius that people should be reading about or doing before you come back, to really like get their Mesoamerican knowledge one before you come back.
1: Yeah, I would just say that there are a lot of great popular texts about the history of places like Mexico and the Maya kingdoms. So, you know, your your listeners should be uh, excited to go out and read that and uh, I think in a post-COVID reality, I would say, get yourself to Mexico City. Go to the National Museum. Go to Teotihuacan. Go to Guatemala and see Tikal and these places because there's a sense of awe that's difficult to convey in conversation or just images. It's when you're standing on top of one of the pyramids at Teotihuacan, you just feel that this is such an important place and there are such rich stories waiting to be uncovered that that's the that's the exciting thing about working in archaeology, right? and thinking about what what more can we learn about the human experience from these different places and different peoples at different times? So it's yeah, it's uh, there's a lot to talk about.
0: James Doyle, we're having you back because I need to hear more about like literal archaeology like more of like what actually happens and I need to hear like all about the art and the eras and the phases of the Mesoamerican art James Doyle, thank you so much for your time and coming on Getting Curious we just love you, thank you so much
1: (laughs) Thank you for having me, it's great to meet you and I look forward to our round two
0: Yes You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was James Doyle, a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freaked by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. We sure do appreciate it. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. And what we're doing there, honey, is we are following all of our past guests. We're following up on their new work, their new projects, also keeping you up to date on other news stories we're watching. i mean really just giving you some behind the scenes of getting curious. We love you so much and we appreciate your support. Our editor is Andrew Carson and our transcriptionist is Alita Boonsha. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bossick.